Good morning, everybody. Let's make sure all is well. Looks like it is. All right. Good. Hi. Welcome to a live critical Q&A show for uh, number 433. Ah, on uh, what is today? Today is the 19th of November, <laughs> yeah, 2023. So, um, I'm glad you all could join me today. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for your viewership and your support. I see all the usual critics in the uh, comments section here. In fact, let's go ahead and get to um, set up our little Q&A section here. Yes, in the year of our Lord. That is correct. Start Q&A. Okay, good. So I've now got it uh, pulled up here where I can see... The questions that are coming in uh, under the the Q and A I just created in the comment chat box there. So if you want to get me questions like we've been doing for uh, for a little while now, just put them under that comment, and then they will list here, and I won't be and I won't miss your questions. Okay, that's the whole point of that. Um, okay, good. So we've got that going. Let's go ahead and switch over so everybody can see the chat here. I had a couple of things I wanted to kind of throw at you guys first before we got into the questions, uh, give you guys some time to, to start throwing them up, up, up in there. Um, I have a little show and tell, and I wanted to ask you guys what your, your thoughts and ideas about um, a couple of thoughts and ideas I had um, for some channel content uh, coming up in the future, maybe. Because... Um, uh, you know, I've referred a lot of times to some things, and sometimes we show and sometimes we go over materials here uh, from Scientology, uh, and I just get to walk through them with you guys or explain them or break them down for you so you can see what it is that Scientologists are actually being indoctrinated with, and that is absolutely the word. Uh, it's not what they are learning. It's what they're being indoctrinated with. And so, um, so I've got a couple properties. I got a I got a whole cabinet of stuff in the garage, of things that I've accumulated over the years. Uh, lots and lo of lectures, uh, R and D volumes, various books, a lot of Impact magazines and other things. And I've got even more digitally. And we've done some live streams where we've walked through some of those things. In fact, we're kind of even um, still, uh, maybe sort of in the middle of one. Um, uh, with John Atak right now on that whole Scientology CS1 thing. So, um, so yeah. So, I thought I'd show a couple of these to you because I wanted to get your take on, is this something that maybe we should do a show about? And I can just really get into some detail about it. Uh, one of them is this pack here. This is a course that is offered in Scientology called the hat of a Scientologist, or at least it used to be offered. I'm not sure that it's still on the price list, but there's a, there's an interesting number of policies and issues in here. Um, you can't see the person's name, but I've actually got the invoice for the course here, too, from the person who sent it to me. Anyway, um, there's a lot of stuff, interesting stuff in here about how Scientologists are told to be Scientologists in the world. The hat of a Scientologist refers to the job or function or duties of that thing in Scientology. It's like a job, right? You have a special job, you wear a special hat. So the hat of a Scientologist. Um, oh, yes, uh, Jeff, I would love to do that with you as well. Um, 
PTS for Life is in the house here today. Uh, so anyway, that's something that we might go over. I could definitely do a whole show on this and break down maybe some of the key points or relevant points from the various issues that are contained in this pack. Since it's all in one place, it makes it super convenient and easy to kind of go over it with you guys. So maybe that might be the basis of a show, but you let me know. Is that is that something you want to see? And if not, it's fine with me. And if so, it's even finer with me. So let me know. Um, the other thing I had that I thought we might do a show on um, is this is the Scientology Survival Rundown course pack. You can see here how thick it is. It's a nice, big, chunky book. And, um, and there's a lot. You know, it opens up here, and you have this whole booklet inside here with the, um, with the check sheet and then a ton of issues, uh, color illustrations, of the various principles in the book uh, and people doing auditing and graduating from their courses and things like that. It's all very modern. This is the latest and greatest out of, out of the Church of Scientology right now, this, um, you know, this course. And it's a very, very important lower-level activity for Scientologists. Tons of people in Scientology have done this or actions around or included in this, not very many Scientologists have done the OT levels. And it's really funny to me how we, and, and I've done this too, right, just as guilty as everybody else, of just harping and harping and harping on those OT levels. And you, and you know, you may have noticed uh, more recently, I really like to go in deeper on the lower level stuff because that's what most Scientologists are exposed to. And it doesn't, and it, and all the damage that it can do in changing people's views and perspectives and moral foundations, even as to what's right and wrong and good and bad, and and really messes with people's heads um, in the cult experience. And and so anyway, that might be another basis for a show we could do would be survival rundown. Don't know if uh, you know if that might be a live stream y'all are interested in. And then. Um, the other one that I had, the last one, uh, suggestion-wise here, and again, you guys let me know in the comments, and I'll take a look at it, uh, you know, maybe in a couple days after we get some feedback uh, on and off live on this. But this, you know, we've talked about all the dictionaries in Scientology, and I think I might have shown one or two of these before, but this is the Modern Management Technology Defined Scientology Dictionary. Okay, you can see it's really big. There's a lot in here, and the word, it's not like great big letters either. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff in here. This is um, not just definitions of all these uh, administrative terms in Scientology. There's a whole section on here, just pages and pages and pages of abbreviations in Scientology that are, uh, that are laid out and defined here. You know, like STK is short for Stockholm. Right, and STND is standard, while uh, while STN is station. You know, anyway, those aren't huge things. But then there's also illustrated organizing boards of Scientology over the years and how it's changed. This this series of illustrations of the various organizational structures of Scientology is probably a whole video in and of itself. Right, if I just scanned all the org boards and we walk through the evolution of how Scientology has organized itself. And then this is another dictionary that's in Scientology. This is, you can see, this is another booklet. This is, a, this is another latest and greatest. And this dictionary is the student hat dictionary. 
And this is the dictionary for one course in Scientology called the Student Hat. teaches you how to study. And these are the specialized definitions that L. Ron Hubbard uses throughout that course to, to define all those specialized photography, air, you know, um, aeronautical, all the other specialized terms he uses are all in this dictionary. So when we say, just as a point, you can see how thick this thing is, right? When we say that there's a lot of loaded language in Scientology, I'm not kidding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot here. So um, I thought maybe, you know, there might be some shows here. So you guys, you guys let me know. And now that we are, um, now that we're rolling in the, uh, in the show here, and I see some questions in the queue, let's go ahead and start getting to your questions. Um, yes. Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. Hot take, Xenu doesn't matter. Exactly. When 5% of your total group is the number that's making it up to OT3 and above, and that is the number as far as I remember from my time at AOLA and my time overall, the technical delivery in Scientology, I ran those numbers. That was part of my job. And, um, and so uh, from my memory of that at least, right, you know, not a lot of Scientologists are getting up to the you know, the DC-8, <laughs> you know, narrative. Um, okay, so let's see what we have here for some questions today. Um, all right, and I, oh, somebody commented earlier, yes, I am, I am left-handed. Yes, that does, that is true. Uh, okay, let's see if we can throw this up on screen. Um, there it is, good. What do you think of Jeff Augustine's theory... Uh, using Doctrine of Exchange, that David Miscavige has a personal services contract with the IAS and is paid slash gets commission for making speeches at IAS events? Well, that's an interesting question. I wasn't aware of that theory, but, um, you know, anything that can get, that can appear to give Miscavige the air of or the sheen of legitimacy in how he makes money or how he is personally, you know, paid by Scientology to do things more above and beyond his Sea Org $50 a week um, pay would be something he'd be very, very keen to do. Um, so I can't speak to the specifics of yes or no. David Miscavige is absolutely getting paid commissions to do IAS briefings. And remember, he really only does them once or twice a year. I mean, this is not like something he's doing a lot. But... You know, could he uh, theoretically, you know, get uh, a, a commission from the IAS trust and could that be arranged as, as a contract? I suppose so. Anything's possible. I mean, you can contractually obligate or, or put, you know, put a contract together about almost anything. Um, so it's an interesting idea. I'm not sure what to think about it in terms of the, of the certainty that it's a truth, but it's, it's an interesting idea, and I certainly uh, think it has credibility. There's no reason why that couldn't happen. Um, so I'll just put it that way, you know, kind of simple, but yeah, interesting. Okay, then we move on here. What do we got? Ha <laughs> Okay, PTS for Life, with your upcoming time off, do you have any goals or plans for that time? I have one thing that I'm absolutely positive I'm doing in December, and that is visiting family. And uh, it's been long overdue, and I need to meet my niece. 
Uh, she's uh, still uh, less than one year old, and uh, uh, her name is Phoebe, uh, my brother's daughter, and I am very much looking forward to that, and seeing my nephew, uh, Cooper, as well, and my family, and and uh, and all of that. So that's, that's happening. Um, otherwise... I've got so many ideas, it's a little bit of a whirlwind, um, but I'm probably going to start with, the, you know, sort of the, the time off thing and just kind of try to eject everything out of my brain for a week or two and see if that works <laughs> and see if that might help recharge the engines a little bit. Um, I definitely have some organizational work to do on renaming and rebranding my Sensibly Speaking podcast, so that's all going to be happening in December. Uh, not a lot of work, really, but a, but a bit. I got to come up with a new brand image and logo and stuff like that and get the domain name figured out and all that. Oh, by the way, um, just to throw this out here for you guys, right, if you want to, okay, um, it's a $200 deal to get a new domain name and podcast registered and set up and everything. So if any of you want to help me with that, I would really appreciate it because um, I'm just going to tell you lately, things have been really strapped. So, um, so it is a challenge right now, but I, I'm one, one way or the other, that, that, that change is going to happen. <clears throat> but if you can help me with that, that would really be awesome. Um, okay. I, I guess links, you know, to, to all the different ways to support me are already in the description section. So I won't belabor that. Um, Christmas, of course, holiday season. <laughs> I'm definitely going to celebrate the holidays. And I don't really want to say what else I might get up to work-wise because I've got another project I want to do. But I am so... I have been learning, you know, just to, I, this is a great question, and I know it, it was kind of a light question, but let me just, let me just say something here. Um, the reality of ADHD has started to become more and more apparent and real to me as I've learned more and more about it uh, since I've gotten that diagnosis and started dealing with that as a, as a thing. And this is no sympathy plea. This is no like, you know, oh, poor Chris. It's just a fact that when you learn you have this, and we and 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 there's different you know it's a spectrum thing there's different degrees of it i'm not like you know i don't consider myself a disabled person because of this but it has challenges and i wasn't even cognizant of what some of those challenges were until that label and that concept came into my life of you know the the my neurology right my 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 neurons uh, like everybody else who's got this condition, right, might might have some interesting things uh, to say in my life from time to time. And and the thing that surprised me the most was how it messes with your memory. But the other thing it messes with is your ability to complete actions and focus on things and get things done. Dot 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 dot. And you know, in a very forceful, regimented environment like the Sea Org. All of the excuses you have and reasons you have and, and, and impulses you have, compulsions you have to, you know, to push away work or be dispersed or not get things done or forget things, it's, it's an environment that, that, is, that is unreasonably demanding to a degree that you just can't let yourself think in 
with any of those things and you just kind of ignore it and push it aside and suppress it and not let yourself think you have those problems. But like the emotional suppression that happens in Scientology, that's a fantasy. You are not really getting away with anything. Your body's just accumulating those issues. That's been that's how I can describe it and um, and this has been, you know, very recent, like, thoughts and realizations about this and trying to figure out how to communicate about it. Um, because that, like we talk about, you know, maybe there's a bunch of people in the Sea Org or in Scientology who are depressed, anxious, right, have, have actual personality disorders or conditions, in addition to the disassociation that Scientology slams into you from day one. And what do they do? What is a de- what is a person in Scientology with depression do? Right? Well, they suppress the hell out of it. That's what they do. They ignore it. They don't treat it. They don't pay attention to it. And they try to say that auditing alone is the thing that's going to deal with it. Similar to the ADHD thing. So anyway, I just didn't mean to go on a whole tear about that. But the reason I bring it up is because I'm I'm now and it you know I'm just saying that I have had a bad habit of over-promising and under-delivering, so I don't want to, uh, all of that to say, I don't want to say too much more about what I might or might not get up to in December. God, what a ridiculously long answer to a short question. Um, I know for a fact, just to bring it back to reality, that I am going to have a lot of fun in December. I'm going to definitely have down days where I'm just not going to do anything. And, um, and once I'm sick of that, then I will get back to work and we'll figure things out. And then I'm going to uh, hit the ground running uh, January 1st uh, is the plan and get, and get going. Okay, thank you for asking me that, Jeff. Um, okay, Vernon here. Let's see what he's got to say. During COVID, when the organizations were closed, were staff members simply not being paid at all? How did they support themselves? No, Scientology staff continued to get uh, money from whatever money they were bringing into the church. And I really doubt that the income levels changed that much over COVID, to be honest. I mean, you know, some of the organizations probably really tanked as far as their auditing income and delivery goes. But they were still, you know, a lot of them were still even from home. Uh, on the phone, selling extension courses, in touch with their public, pushing them to continue to do services at home, um, you know, and and bring in money and get IES donations and stuff like that. And I and I don't know that you know that that staff members, even in the best of times, I guess my point is even in the best of times, staff members of churches of Scientology almost uniformly have a second source of income or a spouse who has a source of income independent of Scientology so that they can pay their rent and, you know, and their taxes and and their car insurance and their groceries and all of that and not have to rely on the Church of Scientology for a living wage, which it has not once ever provided in any consistent manner to anyone at any time. So when you know that it's never going to be consistent and it's never going to work out for you that you can only rely on Scientology money, 
you set up in your life other forms of income. And I think that's probably the, the, the realistic answer to how did most staff members survive. Perhaps there were some who ended up, you know, having to leave staff or go get, you know, not they couldn't continue for whatever reason. But I think that's probably the minority of people. I think more people probably left staff over COVID just because they kind of woke up to how ridiculous and and nonsensical the whole thing was, uh, or had that had that conflict with upper management and uh, and the whole QAnon conspiracy theory thing. I know a lot of Scientologists left over COVID period because of that conflict, uh, where you know they were being mandated to keep the orgs clean and use that DEFCON four stuff and and. Um, I, I know I'm, I'm I know it's not called Defcon 4 but you know uh, the um, uh, they were being forced to 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 do all this stuff in compliance with and conformity with you know health and safety guidelines and yet their brain was full of QAnon conspiracy theories and how none of this was real and COVID was fake and all of that and I think that conflict caused more concern and issue and cognitive dissonance over that COVID period than the than the pay did at least from what we heard uh, and the data that I got over that time so that's uh, what I can say about that I hope that answers um, okay let's see here now Oh, Vernon, yes, absolutely they do. Um, do orgs celebrate Thanksgiving in the U.S.? Yes, they do. Uh, absolutely they do. Um, they, um, let me tell you about this, because um, was it Christmas or was it Thanksgiving, actually? We always celebrated Thanksgiving every single year uh, as a staff member and as a Sea Org member. In fact, Thanksgiving was actually the nicest dinner of the year in PAC. Uh, the crew would get like, I think, 45 minutes or an hour dinner. I think 45 minutes because it was usually a half hour. Yeah, it was usually a half hour for dinner. Um, uh, for lunch and for dinner, it was half hour, right? So Thanksgiving was 40 or 45 minutes. And there was turkey and stuffing. You know, it was a whole menu. And, uh, and the galley always got the money for this and always worked it out. And we had a traditional... I honestly tasty Thanksgiving dinner, you know, for a dinner that was being made and served to a thousand people. It was good. Um, it, we all looked forward to it. And it was really, like I said, it was really the best meal of the year, to be honest. Um, cause Christmas was different. Christmas was more of a Christmas party kind of, there was Boston's party and, and there were Christmas parties and stuff. And so it was more snackage and stuff. It wasn't really feasting kind of food, at least not from what I remember. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but Christmas seemed to be a bit different. Thanksgiving was the whole sit down and, and do the dinner thing. Even on the RPF, we had a half hour for, uh, for meals. Uh, I know, it's luxury, right? <laughs> we had a half hour for our Thanksgiving. Um, but that's how it was. It was... Um, uh, that way, you know, you get this, you get this extra precious 10 minutes. And, and when on the RPF, it, meal times were 20 minutes. So it was 20 minutes for lunch, 20 minutes for dinner. So a half hour was, ah, oh, luxury, right? Um, people could go smoke their cigarettes in peace and not be rushing through them. So, yeah, so that's Thanksgiving in Scientology as I remembered or experienced it at least. All right. Uh, X-Cyan here. Um, 
Oh, yes. Thank you for the link to the street epistemology course yesterday. I'll check it out for sure. How often do you use street epistemology every day, all the time? Yeah, I try to. Um, thank you. You're welcome for that. Uh, for those who don't know, and I am not being paid a dime for this, um, Anthony Magnabosco, I've had on my podcast a few times, and we have discussed in detail this, this, uh, this sort of discourse technique, you could say this way of talking to people, that is uh, called street epistemology. And it's, it's a weird name, but it's a, it's a method of talking to people in such a way that you can get them to talk about their beliefs and their what's important to them, what matters to them. Um... um without making them defensive, without raising their hackles, without getting them all pissed off, right? Without, without debating or arguing. It's a, it's a very different method of inquiry. And it's respectful, it's courteous, um, and, it is, it, and it has the potential of teaching the questioner just as much as it does of changing the mind of the person whose beliefs are being inquired into. So I believe that this is a very, very useful technique. And it is not a therapeutic technique. It's not a treatment modality. There's never was intended to be. That's not what it's about. It's about getting people to talk to each other rationally about, you know, deep-seated beliefs. And, uh, and even total strangers can do this. And there's tons of videos from Anthony about this. So now that I've kind of explained it and, you know, and, and pimping it here, there's a new course that has now been finally put together. It has been years in the making. I've been tracking with these guys off and on for years, and I've contributed to it, um, ideas and, and feedback and whatnot. And so they finally have pulled the trigger, and now the first, I think it's the first six modules or something of this course, 100% free. You don't have to pay a dime to learn how to do this. It's a nonprofit organization who is, what was put together to teach this and disseminate, you know, propagate this and try to uh, popularize it. So I, um, so that's what I'm doing here right now because I believe in it very, very strongly. I think it's a great way of, of formalizing a structure by which you can communicate with somebody else and they can communicate back to you, and it doesn't have to get nasty and mean and vicious. You know, I think, anyway, I think you guys get the point. So, <laughs> of course you do. Uh, anyway, so how often do I use it? Well, you know, often enough, I don't find myself having to really inquire with individuals I meet on a regular basis about deep-seated beliefs. But when I do consultation with people, I will absolutely use this, not necessarily to try to change their mind, but to draw out, you know, what are they thinking? What are their, what are their ideas about these things? How certain are they of these beliefs or ideas? That's come up from time to time, but it's not the guiding, um, you know, methodology for me and what I do, but it's useful as a tool, that is for sure. And if I do run into people who seem to be at odds, then it's a great way of, of doing that. And I actually honestly wish I remember to use it more often. Uh, that's on me. So, um, so anyway, that's what I can say about all of that. Um, oh, I didn't even have it up on the screen while I was answering that, huh? Okay, well, there's the question there. So that was the one I was just answering. Sorry, guys. <laughs> all right, uh, here's the next one. Make sure this goes up. Yes, if we all had OT powers at one time in the distant past, what are the reasons that we lost them? Okay, great question. Um, 
Let me break this down. First off, the number one reason is moral uh, transgressions, right? Sins, overts, overt acts. You did bad things. You had the freedom. Um, you had ultimate freedom. You had ultimate power. And you found, according to this is now, I'm going to answer this question totally according to what L. Ron Hubbard asserts as the answers to this question, okay? I don't believe any of this is true. However, in Scientology, you are an immortal spiritual being who has lived basically forever. You've always been around, and uh, you always will be around. There is no dying for you. Uh, You are a godlike being who has infinite power as far as matter, energy, space, and time is concerned. So having exercised that infinite power in the past in such a way that you hurt people, or at least it appeared that you hurt people, people being other thetans, other spiritual entities, um, constructs or things that those entities owned or, or created themselves, Uh, And you came along and trashed it or blew it up or did bad things or, you know, stuff like that. Or you created an army and you had the army go blow it up or whatever. I mean, you can, you know, when you're God versus God, right? It's like, who knows? Anything's possible. But the point is that it's some, uh, because Hubbard asserts that all Thetans are basically good, meaning that they intend to do right by other Thetans. They want to get along. They want to be compassionate. They want to be tolerant. They want to be understanding. They want to play nice. That's the, that's the basic intention with Thetans is, hey, let's have a game. Let's play. Let, woohoo, right? Action and games and all of that is very, very high-toned activity in Scientology. It's not just, you know, a Thetan's existence is not just sitting on a cloud playing a harp or existing in some alternate reality. It is, it is whatever it wants to be. It is, this, it is this life unit that can create anything. So in the course of creating anything, sometimes you find that your creations have ill-affected others, right? Have negatively affected others. And this causes the being to retreat, to pull in their flippers a little bit, to go, oh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to do that, right? It's sort of like the... Um, you know the the uh, what's the what's the phrase for this? Like the compassionate giant. You know the the the, the fumbling giant who doesn't know his own strength and and put, is is destroying things in the china shop and and it's all by and so you know the lesson learned is oh don't go into china shops because I can't be trusted. And that lesson learned about a million times over results in a thetan pulling in their flippers. And no longer being willing to exert their power over others or in the universe, right? Maybe I shouldn't do that. Oh, that's a bad thing. And so they pull in. And, uh, and on top of that, now, that's one mechanism. The other one is that in the course of this um, damage that they do, the other Thetans start damaging them, right? Tit for tat. Start getting this back and forth. Oh, you're going to throw beams of energy at my creations and destroy them? Well, zap right back at you, buddy, right? Zing, zing, and now we're having a Thetan battle. Or now these two Thetans are destroying each other's constructs or ideas. And 
Um, and this is the this is how you get the evolution of what's called in Scientology the overt motivator sequence, where you commit an overt, and then you believe somebody else must have done something to you to motivate that overt to have happened, even though you're the one who who shot first. You convince yourself, well, he shot first because if I, you know, which forced me to shoot first. I mean, it doesn't even, you know what I mean? You can, you can have it be that blatantly stupid. But point is that this overt motivator back and forth of I did it because you deserved it. You did it back to me because I deserved it. Back and forth, back and forth. This mechanism is another way that Thetans are turned into evil beings who are now willing to overtly hurt or harm or destroy other thetans. This is the generation or genesis of evil and evil activity, uh, destructive activity, if you will. And so, um, so out of this comes that whole thing I was already talking about of, oh gosh, you know, basically a good being is now being a basically bad being. And over the course of time can become quite enamored with being bad, actually, they kind of forget their basic goodness, and they just start making a go out of it. Like their game over the course of, of, of many, many years or even millennia of years is what kind of chaos can I cause, right? Their, their, their personality as a Thetan is now shifted over into a more of a you know, chaotic Joker-type personality <laughs> that's kind of, what kind of ah! and they start really um abusing and victimizing their fellow beings and this could all have been happening before bodies were even a thing right before civilizations were even a thing right i'm talking about the kind of damage being done to other thetans of like you know planets being thrown at each other like billiard balls and things right this kind of really crazy concepts are are kind of what you get the idea of in reading Hubbard's lectures. He talks about this. I mean, he talks about them throwing planets at each other and stuff. So, so you have these like really wild ideas about our past and how even before we had bodies and stuff and got sucked down to such a level that we were, you know, that we became the dolls we were playing with. Right before that all happened, we were these mega beings having these mega experiences, but hurting the hell out of each other. And somewhere along the line, there became, there there came in the idea that maybe I I need to control you so that you stop being such a bad Thetan all the time. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm not only going to just bap you with you know with with energy or something and 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 hurt you or or temporarily paralyze you or something no 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 what i need to do is i need to change the way you think so that you will never again even want to or have the idea of hurting me or hurting this construct i've created or whatever so i'm going to trap you i'm gonna pin you down i'm gonna get some of my friends and we're gonna pin you down and we're gonna hit you so hard with so much energy and at the same time that we're doing that we're gonna command you to 
fill in the blank, right? Do whatever it is we want you to do or stop doing what it is, forbid you from doing what it is. In other words, we're going to hypnotize you. We're going to implant you with energy, with so much overwhelming force that you're going to get knocked out literally as a thetan. And if you can imagine, you know, the, um, you know, Google tons of energy that would be required to do something like that, apparently, according to Hubbard, um, then that's the kind of energy they were throwing around back then. And this began the series, the beginning of what were called implants. And apparently all of us, over all the Trelania that we have been here, have been very bad boys and girls implanting one another because we've all fallen and sunken down into the mud with each other and we're all guilty of having victimized each other countless, countless times. And all of that victimization wears on a Thetan, right? It's not just an easy, clean, let me just victimize all you people and no big deal. It, it wears on a person. It's, it's, there's all that guilt, right? They know they're doing bad. So it has the unintended consequence of making the implanters pull in their flippers more, reduce their power more, because, you know, deep down inside, they're like, I don't want to be doing all this bad, right? But, you know, they're acting so evil that they, uh, that it's just gotten completely out of hand. And that's kind of the situation with pretty much everybody, all of us. All of us who are here. Uh, so those are the those are in in general broad terms the concepts involved and in what when what reduced the the power of thetans and it trapped us. We trapped ourselves. Is the point? We did it all to ourselves, and um, and so what we need to do to unwind and and rewind and and, and get out of that mess right is take responsibility for all the bullshit we've been involved in all these years. And ultimately, that's kind of where you're trying to go with auditing in terms of the confessionals and the, and the, the, the body thetan releases and all of that. Because even the body thetans are a product of these high-energy impacts. Body thetans aren't lesser beings. A body thetan is a thetan just like you are. It's just that they are so comatose and out of it because they were so overwhelmed with so much energy and such heavy implants that they just, uh, I'm checking out, uh, I, uh, right? And they glom together, they cluster, Hubbard says, and they create their own kind of mass. And that's how you get these body thetans. And that's as much sense as there is to it. It's really, it's the most illogical concept. You can take it apart in a couple seconds. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we're going along with what I'm saying here as far as the answering the question from a Scientology point of view, even the body thetans are the result of, you know, this heavy energy thing. I just wanted to point that out that... That's what reduces the power of a Thetan. And it all comes back down to the individual and the individual's responsibilities. Uh, 
And uh, and that's that's the answer to the question. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's quite wild. It's a whole space opera fantasy that Hubbard invented over years. And there's lots and lots of details of specific incidents and specific things that have happened over all this time. But the general big picture is what I just described, at least as I understand it. Maybe some other OTs or other people in Scientology had a different take on it. But from all the study I did, that's the picture. And, uh, and I think... I, I, I hope uh, most other people and you know from uh, high level Scientology or, or educated Scientologists would would agree with me on that. So um, there you go. Long answer on that one, but that was kind of fun. Okay. Vernon, uh, is it better for a Scientologist staff member in their 70s or 80s not to wake up and leave Scientology because they will realize that they wasted their whole life in the cult? Uh, no, not necessarily, Vernon. No, not necessarily at all. It depends completely on the individual involved as to whether I would make that judgment call about that person. Some people, yes, absolutely. But some people, no. It really depends on the cognitive functionality and, um, yeah, it's a big heavy word, function. You know, how it depends on the person's state of mind. It depends on how they're looking at things. It depends on their ability to change, their ability to grow. And at 70 or 80 years old, generally speaking, you know, I don't want to like, like stereotype, but those are people who are generally pretty set in their ways. Right? I mean, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, it's not a value judgment, right? It's just a fact that I, you know, that a lot of people now. There's a whole lot of people who are, you know, thirty who are very set in their ways, but not quite the way people who are seventy or eighty are. I mean, these are people who have lived with a belief set and a moral foundation set and a and a worldview and a and a cultural, you know, view that is pretty laid in. And at the later years of life, you know, most people, and I'll say most people. I'm not going to say all people by any stretch because it's absolutely not true. But a whole lot of people are just not interested in learning new things, changing their ways, or hearing about it. They don't even want to hear it. It's like, it's my way. This has worked for me all this time. Fuck off, right, as far as trying to change my mind or bring me around to a new way of thinking or something, right? This is kind of the attitude. Now, again, not universally, right, but um, but it, but I think it's it's pretty pretty generalized true so you have to look at the utility of what is it you're trying to do if you're trying to get a person out of a cult situation in order to give them a higher quality of life and a better future then more power to you um, and you should but there are some beliefs and some ideas that are fairly harmless. Now, Scientology is not harmless, which is why it's a difficult question here compared to, say, you know, some, some young earth creationist ideas or beliefs or some harmless stuff that the person's not really doing much with. Um, you know, it's kind of just let them have it. Like, what, what, what are you trying to do? Why, wh who cares, right? Like, the person's going to die thinking the earth is 2,000 years old. And for them, they're happy with that. You know, they're not out marching in the streets and, and, and picketing, you know, soldiers' funerals or doing weird stuff. Let it, you know, who cares, right? Um, they're not on a microphone. They're not changing the world with those beliefs. They're just comfortably living their lives. So who cares? 
On the other hand, you know, Scientologists are doing bad things. So it might be good to at least get them enlightened on the fact that they're doing bad things or that potentially harmful things. But that's a different tack from, look, let me dig into you and pull out your core beliefs that define who you are as an individual. Yeah, let me take all that out of you at the end of your life and leave you with nothing. Probably not a really nice idea. Probably not the best idea for that person's mental and, and uh, you know, sort of psychological health, right? Um, that's kind of my general take on it is if you can leave it alone, leave it alone. Um, if there's some external reason why this person needs to change, if they're abusing their kids, their, their grandkids, they're, they're constantly harping on, you know, how, how evil everybody outside of Scientology is or something like that. You would certainly want to take some action to tone that down. Uh, but, um, but yeah, waking them up. You know, if you were to sit somebody down who was like 80, let's say, right, and you strip them of all the Scientology stuff and you really finally get through to them and, and you break it all down and it's gone, you know, yeah, now you're leaving them with this, you know, my entire life was useless and a waste. And I can tell you from personal experience how devastating that, that whole concept is. It is not fun to live with, and it takes a long, long time to get over. In fact, I'm going to sit here and tell you 10 years out, I ain't over that part yet. I'm over, some, I'm over a whole lot of stuff as far as personal damage Scientology did to me, but I am not, you know, I can, I can still be angered about some things uh, about my experience, and the, and the loss of all those years is something that still upsets me in some ways. Um, so, I don't know. I hope that answers. Does that answer the question? I hope it does. Um, that's kind of my, my thoughts about it. Okay, let's see what we got here. Exion. Um, did you ever have times that you thoroughly enjoyed being in the Sea Org, or was it all hard work and stressful? The San Diego Project was a time that I thoroughly enjoyed being in the Sea Org. That lasted for a couple days. <laughs> right, the end of that project. Not the beginning of it, but the end of it was, was incredible. Um, the very first Sea Org day that I ever had, the first year I was in the Sea Org, was an incredible day. It was great. It was so fun. It was such a great party. It was fun. It was camaraderie. We were getting, everybody was having a good time. People were singing. There was, you know, there was great food. It was catered. It was off the base. We were at a, at a, at a hotel off on the beach, I think over in, uh, um, near Long Beach or something. We had, we had rented a place and, and it was a, it was a fantastic day of celebration. I never, ever had a better celebration in the Sea Org than the first Sea Org day that I had. It was downhill from there for the, for the next 16 years. You know, I was in for 17 years. So, so that first one was, was awesome. Um, that's all that comes to mind for me right now. That's it. That's all I got. Um, the other experiences in the Sea Org, the other things that come to mind to me in the Sea Org were not good times, were not the best of times, uh, were not even very fun. Um, most of it was so much stress. 
And I had a, um, I had a really, I had a kind of an interesting sort of experience recently where, you know, I had this very intense emotional experience. And you know how when you have something like that where you get like really upset or really angry or really intensely experiencing something? And then there's the after of that when you kind of come down off the intensity. But for me, that can last for hours of just trying to come down off of that. And the feeling of that, that sort of there's this nervousness, I'm giddy stomach, I feel all weird, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm not myself totally yet, right? Because when you're in the extreme emotional headspace, you're kind of a different person, right? And I, and I was amazed at the memories that, that, fe- that those feelings were giving me of my time in the Sea Org and how I felt that nervous, anxious, giddy stomach, weird coming up, coming down in the middle, kind of weird place where I'm not sure how I should feel or how I'm supposed to feel or I'm trying to feel less stressed right now, but I can't because I'm so stressed. It's a, I hope this is making some sense. I, I, I'm trying to put words to this. It's a, it's a, it was a complicated set of feelings. But I realized that that set of feelings, that, that, that weird place, was where I lived almost all the time that I was in the Sea Org. It's a kind of a fight or flight kind of feeling. It's a being hunted kind of feeling. It's a I'm on pins and needles, right? I'm walking on eggshells kind of feeling. That is more, uh, you know, um, descriptive of my emotional state in the Sea Org uh, and being around the Sea Org even. When I was a staff member even, that's kind of how I felt. I was always so nervous. Didn't want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing or or piss somebody off or say something that was going to trigger somebody else, you know. And we didn't even use language like that. It wasn't about triggering. It was just, you know, it was, you fucked up, <laughs> right? So that was sort of the, that was a lot more common of a feeling and experience for me than, than, the, than the, the enjoying myself. So, um what I got for you on that one. Okay. Oh, here's a good question. Did I ever purposefully crash a stat so that you could start over and intentionally bring it back up only slightly each week so that you could be up stat most of the time? Oh, no. I would never, ever do something like that. How could you ask me such a question? That would be very out ethics. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. I did that. We all did. There's not one person in Scientology who didn't do that as a staff member or Sea Org member at some point. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I watched orgs do it too. Right. I mean, you could kind of tell. You could see when it was happening. Um, it's interesting how, as a manager in Scientology, you really do get this thing. There's there's this stat management thing in Scientology where you can look at a book of statistics from an organization, and it really does tell you. It paints a picture. You get a visualization of what life on the ground at that org actually is like. 
And and sometimes you're right. It's it's really quite interesting. The, you get this picture, this statistical picture of the of the production of the organization, and it tells you right away where they're concentrating their attention and where they're not, right? And what's important that week and what's not, and that kind of thing. It's always so funny. Um, so for me personally, of course, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to deflect here. Yeah, I absolutely did do that, and I don't remember you know, any specific incident of it. I just know I did it because um, we all did, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that's any big secret. Um, <laughs> stat management, right? <laughs> I manage those statistics all right. Um, I wish it had been easier to do that, though, uh, because a lot of my statistics, especially as a manager, relied on other people's statistics and I was just adding up all of their work and that was my statistics. So it was really kind of more later when I had a more personalized statistic that was based on my own personal work kind of thing rather than the managerial stuff. Um, but I, but yeah, that, that, that happened. You, know, you, you would, and how it would work is actually I'm remembering now it was more of, okay, I'm going to, instead of putting a lot of work in on a Sunday or a Monday or something, right? Where I'm going to I'm going to set things up so that by Thursday this is going to come off. I might be like, "Okay, well, I'm going to eat it this week because this stuff is going to be because the stuff that I could have produced this week, I'm going to bump up to next week and the week after." So that I can get, because I'm already fucked this week. Like it might be, I'm remembering a a week where it was like, okay, no matter what I do, I'm screwed. I'm not going to be able to get my statistics up this week. So let's go ahead and tank them. Not so hard that I'm going to be in a lot of trouble, but let's just let it tank. Let's not, let's not raise it higher than it, than it would, would be otherwise. And let's save that for next week. Yeah, absolutely did that. Yeah. Okay. Um, just part of the culture, man. You just It's survival skills, really, in a way. Because you don't get time off if your stats aren't up. And if an important thing's coming up and you really want that time off, if you don't have your stats up, you, that, sorry. You know, it's that arbitrary. And, it's that, and it doesn't matter if it's a wedding, a funeral, a personal thing. You know, your, your mom just died. Nobody cares. In the Sea Org, they don't give a shit about your family. They don't care at all. Not once. Not once. You can be. You can have a. Mar- you could be getting married, and if your stats aren't up, you know, forget it. All right. Um, oh, here's a good question, Joe DeSeppo. If you or I were to be a fly on the wall when Miscavige was reacting. At the recent St. Hill protest with his inner circle of staff there, what would we see? (laughs) You would see much gnashing of teeth. (laughs) You would see a much chewing of the carpet. You would would see David Miscavige having an absolute hissy fit. And, um, you know, and Mitch has described these. uh, You know, people have described these things. Lots of people have. Miscavige just loses his shit. He just starts yelling and screaming and pounding on things, and um, and I imagine that was his. I imagine that was his uh, temperament. Now I wonder, though. I wonder because it's also possible. Um, you know, now I'm thinking to you know when Cruz arrived. You know, Miscavige would have already been there. Um, 
And I wonder, I wonder if he was joined by Cruz and then it was just kind of a what the fuck kind of thing, right? And maybe behind closed doors, you know, he and he and Cruz are like these fucking guys, right? And then, you know, and then he has to pick up the phone and call Janet. And as we heard, Janet was getting reamed out by Miscavige, right? Well, at the other end of that, you know, in Miscavige's room, it might have been an ice cold thing, too. It might not have been screaming and ranting and raving and, and clawing at the walls. It might have been, you know, because Tom, if Tom were there or other, I don't think he would have been in the room having that call with Janet, with any other whale in the room, any other Scientology public person would have would have been allowed in there. But I could see Cruz. I could imagine that that could have been the case. But with her, you know, without Cruz, I, you know, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to say for sure, but it seems to me. I guess what I'm saying is, it seems to me that maybe he would have kept his cool a little bit more if Cruz were around, as opposed to if he wasn't there, he would have felt more free to just completely let loose on those people. So a little hard to say, right? But one way or the other, no matter how you slice it, um, whether there was a moderating influence in the room or not, Miscavige was absolutely livid. And uh, and would have declared that lividity <laughs> to anyone with an earshot, right? It would not have been pleasant, and I would not have been. I would not have wanted to be around any of that. Um. Oh, you yeah, you got it, Xion. You you you're nailing me here, right? I'll hold back a stat. Yeah, that's exactly what I described. Okay. Um. Yes. Okay. Here's another good question, X Cyan. Um, have you ever had the thought that if it wasn't for Scientology, you wouldn't be where you are today, and maybe never even met Melissa, for example? Of course, I've had that thought many times. The, I've played the what if game more times than I can count. Right? What if this? What if that? What if I had done this? What if I had done that? I mean, every single avenue. I think all of us ex cult members do. Right? We have all our regrets. And we run through every scenario uh, imaginable of, well, what if I had redone this or redone that? And, and there's a point of acceptance I want to describe here in answer to this question that I think might be most useful for people. Hindsight bias is a killer. It's an absolute killer. In fact, it's kind of an important one. So let me pull this up. And go over this for a second because it had everything to do with my with, with a really important part of my recovery with this question. Um, hindsight bias is a psychological phenomenon that allows people to convince themselves after an event that they accurately predicted it before it happened. This can lead people to conclude that they can act or accurately predict other events. The other aspect of hindsight bias is beating yourself up for you should have known. An outcome of this, an unintended consequence, or maybe intended consequence of hindsight bias is because I could have, should have accurately predicted the future, I should have been able to prevent this future from happening. It should have been within my realm of understanding and action to to stop myself or do something different that is a lie a hundred percent of the time there are no exceptions it is always 
a lie. And that was a very powerful realization for me to have in my own recovery, is that it is never true that you could have done something different. You acted the way you acted because you couldn't act any other way in that circumstance under those events, under that context. Had the events been a little different, had you been thinking differently that day, had you been informed of things differently, yes, you could have acted differently and maybe you would have. But you weren't informed. Nobody told you. Nobody let you in on the secret. You didn't have access to the knowledge you now have of what the consequence of that would be. You had no idea what was going to happen when you pushed the button or you walked into the Scientology church or you gave them your credit card or, or, or. You had an idea of what you thought was going to happen. You had an intended consequence. You predicted this is what's going to happen. And that's not what happened. And now you're left holding the bag going, well, shit, I did this thing. I put myself here. I could have done something different. No, you couldn't have. And beating yourself up over what you could have, should have, would have done is an exercise in futility and self-punishment. And it's actually not a good idea to do that to yourself. And that's a lesson, I, all of that is the lesson I learned from this question, from, from living this over and over again and wondering, you know, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently, um, et cetera, right? And so on the other end of that, of course, is... Um, Look at all these good things I have in my life as a result of all those bad experiences. And that's life, right? You have the good, you have the bad. And sometimes the bad brings about the good. And aren't we fortunate when that happens? I consider myself lucky and fortunate to have stumbled into the situation I did here in Denver, meeting my wife, meeting an incredible group of people who are super friendly and super rational and just like interacting on that, on that basis that's a great group of friends to have. And, um, and of course, all the other things, you know, that make up my life. And it's not an easy life. I, I struggle quite often um, mentally and, you know, everything else. But it's a way better life. And I will take this life a thousand times over the life I used to have, which had more stability, had more certainty, and absolutely gave me a very clear-cut roadmap for my life. Being in Scientology answered every question and handled every need. I wasn't hungry. I was tired a lot. <laughs> and I was hungry maybe, you know, more than I should have been. But at least I had my three squares, and I had a place to sleep, and I had a uniform, and I had answers. I had answers to every question you want to ask. And that meant a lot. To me, that meant a lot. Some people, that doesn't mean as much. But for me, that was everything. And losing all of that, not fun, not easy, not a good time. But the consequences of it, right? My wife, my dog, my life, uh, my, my, my uh, reinvigorated and, and, re and totally different relationship with my parents, with my brother, with my, you know, my family, all of that is, is miles and miles above the, the existence I had in Scientology. 
Um, so if it weren't for all of those Scientology experiences, there's absolutely no chance I would be here doing what I'm doing. So yes, I've absolutely uh, considered that whole thing many, many times. So thanks for, thanks for asking about that. All right, I see we are now past an hour, and um, I see I've only got a couple more questions in the queue, so I'm going to answer these, and then let's go ahead and, and see about uh, being wrapping up here. But I've got three or four questions here, so let's, let's go on these. Bud123, is the Socratic method more effective than street epistemology? Some atheists, leftists, claim that street epistemology is motivated by the goal to make them atheists, and the Socratic method is better. No, I believe in my heart of hearts that street epistemology as a technique is better than Socratic method in that it is more guided. It is more, there is a, it's a more purposeful method of, of discourse. Um, Socratic method is, at least as I understand it, maybe let me, let me actually make sure since I'm going to answer this in some authoritative fashion here, let me make sure that I understand what you mean by Socratic method. Um, the Socratic method is a form of argumentative dialogue between individuals based on asking and answering questions. And, and that's my understanding of it. It's, it's using questions and answering questions in the course of doing the argument or the debate or the learning moment. And that can be very, very, very effective as a learning tool. And I absolutely am in support of uh, a Socratic method way of changing a person's mind or getting them to think or consider different perspectives through questioning. That's a great thing, but it's very open-ended and there's no guidelines or regulation to how you go about doing it. Street epistemology is a very different thing because it takes the concept of you could say it's a subset of socratic method because it or you know in the venn diagram of it it's sort of inside it because it it is questioning at least as i understand it but it's questioning along certain lines using certain methods and certain um there's certain goals and sub goals along the way and certain ways that you inquire about belief for example if you were to ask a person um, okay, well, here you have this belief in, um, you know, Jesus is the Lord or something, or that Zenu, you know, happened, right? Okay, let me ask you, how certain are you of that belief? If you were to graduate, you know, if you were to scale that on 1 to 10, right, or 1% to 100%, right, where would you put yourself on that belief? Now, that's a, that's a Socratic questioning, but it's really, but it's, in street epistemology, it's, a, it's one of many questions that are guiding you through this process. So, um, so I will say, from my point of view and my perspective on things, that um, I think street epistemology is, is more effective, but when we come to the concept of effectiveness, that's a pretty loosey-goosey word because it's all in the eye of the beholder as to what is or isn't effective or where you're it all depends on where you're trying to go, right? Would I use street epistemology to deconvert a Scientologist? Not exclusively, right? But it might be part of the tool set. But I would not use that and say, well, with this one method, I guarantee a result that I'm going to deconvert this guy. That I would never, ever make such a claim. That would just be unfounded and ridiculous. You don't know what it's going to take to deconvert this person. Uh, that's going to take an awful lot of discussion with them and understanding of that individual in front of you. And maybe 
Street epistemology as a method might be useful for this person, but it might well be that you just have to tell him a couple stories about Hubbard on the boat and how he locked up kids in chain lockers, and that might do it. It has. That fact alone has served to deconvert a person, right? So there's so it's always individual for a person. So effectiveness is gauged by the context and the circum right, by the circumstances. Um and I and I and I and I hesitate to make broad judgments about that, but I will lean toward, you know, again, street epistemology as a method only because it's more um, codified. It's not a it's not a loosey goosey. We'll just ask a bunch of questions as they occur to you, and maybe you'll get there. More often than not, it's going to end up uh, in the in the hands of people who are not clear on what they're doing. Um, I think Socratic method could break down into a, you know, into a full-on debate argument thing just as more easily than somebody who was practicing the more disciplined approach of, of street epistemology. That's my view on it. Okay, uh, Liz D., speaking of 70s and 80s, what happens to Sea Org members who get too old to work? Is there some sort of retirement program or do they just work till they drop? All right, um, both. Um, I've heard of both. I've seen both. With my own two eyes, uh, I have seen Sea Org members who had some money or who had money gathered for them somehow uh, put into retirement homes when they are just too damn old to operate on their job anymore. Um, but I have seen Sea Org members die on post, and now we're not young, right? Um, I, you know, so uh, or die on base, right, in their sleep or whatever. Uh, we had dead bodies in pack, right, of senior citizens who who, who died. Um, hell, we had uh, senior citizens shipped from Clearwater to Los Angeles because they didn't want them dying in Clearwater. But it's okay to die in pack, apparently. Anyway, yes, yeah, so there was some efforts made. I can't speak to how organized or effective these efforts were because I only viewed them from the periphery, but I did see Sea Org members put into senior citizen homes. And I'm talking about a handful of people. I'm not talking about lots of them. Um, and I saw more often than not, though, I saw older Sea Org members either die on base uh, or um, leave the Sea Org and maybe go live with family or something like that. I saw that a couple times, too. It was always a mixed bag. I couldn't say that. I, can, I don't know the number numbers-wise which solution was more prevalent and it might be that it changed over time it might be during this time period it was you know no retirement homes no that's not happening to oh no let's institute that and then maybe at a later date oh no no more retirement homes i mean the sea org is back and forth on itself all the time with everything um so it can be one way at this one period of time and then totally different another period of time uh, how they dealt with children, for example, was like that. It was it was okay, then it wasn't okay, then it was kind of okay, then it was totally not okay. You know, so it's kind of like that. Okay. Um, let's see what we got here. Leslie Bishop. Chris, have you ever wondered if Hubbard was deeply examined, what kind of a diagnosis a psychiatrist would give him? Oh, gosh, a whole laundry list of them. <laughs> 
I have said or asserted myself, um, you know, in my expert diagnosis, which I am not an expert at diagnosing. That's the joke. Um, but I believe Hubbard was a, um, a clinical megalomaniac, a pathological liar. And, um, and I believe he was a classic malignant narcissist. Those are my ideas of what he is. But I think it might be interesting. And he was diagnosed uh, by a psych at one point in the early 50s uh, when his ex-wife was, or his, his second wife, rather, uh, uh, was trying to get out from under him. Um, but that wasn't, uh, that, you know, I, I don't put a lot of credence in that. It was, it was, I don't think he was even there to be diagnosed. Um, by today's standards, it was, it was not done right. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I think that's the diagnosis he would get. I think it would be along those lines. Now, also, let's remember, and I always, I always love plugging this, is the show I did years ago with Yuval Leor about a possible explanation. I think the title of it is A Possible Explanation or a New Theory or a New Explanation for L. Ron Hubbard. Something, the title is something like that. And we go over in detail his supposition of that L. Ron Hubbard suffered from a physical condition called temporal lobe epilepsy. And that was not diagnosable in L. Ron Hubbard's lifetime until the very end. He would not have received that diagnosis unless he had gone and gotten a brain scan, stuff like that. And he was, of course, completely unmotivated to ever do anything like that. Um, but we believe that he suffered from that. And to this day, I absolutely believe that that is true. So that's worth, that's something also worth checking out. That whole podcast was a lot of fun to do. And, um, and we went over in detail all the symptomology. And maybe I should call you a ball and we should do that podcast again. It's been so many years. And, um, and people have this thing. They don't, they, you know, like I have a whole library of videos. Just to let me plug this for a second that are evergreen. You guys can always go back and look at my old content. And it's not old. It's just as good today as it was five, six, seven years ago when we first made it. So in my interviews with Rachel, with John Atack, with Natalie Feinblatt, you know, uh, with so many people, that data is, hasn't changed one comma since the day we did those interviews. So you might want to um, go back through my catalog and check some stuff out in that sense. All right. Uh, let's see. Just two more, two or three more here. I have um, Stephanie M. I have been watching some of your early vids. Really good. Please discuss a few. Um, sure. Oh, well, in addition to what I just said, right, we have, for example, um, some of my classics are the Scientology Organizational Madness, which breaks down the organizational hierarchy and structure of Scientology top to bottom. We have the Bridge to Total Freedom, part one and two, where I break down uh, the basics of Scientology playlist, actually, has a whole series of videos breaking down all the different basic fundamentals, or a lot of them, in Scientology. Tons of good stuff there. In fact, there's a blow-by-blow -blow of the Scientology Bridge to Total Freedom and all the services that they offer. That's a real fun one. Um, and there was one called, oh, God, what was that called? Um, Scientology's, not Scientology's imploding, but, you know, it's destroying itself, something like that, uh, where I got to talk about, you know, how they go about destroying themselves. And that's, that video, I, I think that was one of the first videos I made. And it was still true today, every word of it, right? Scientology has just proven me right over and over again because they just keep doing their cruel, inhumane human rights violation practices, they can't stop themselves. 
And so they get lawsuits now and they get, you know, reamed in the press and nobody wants to go into their churches. That's the bra- that's the natural outcome of their policies. They're very, very destructive policies. So, um, so that's what I can say about that. Anyway, there's a couple ones to check out. And then finally, let's see here. Um, oh, thanks, guys. What are you and Melissa doing for Thanksgiving? <laughs> okay, last question for today. And uh, we are having Thanksgiving with our family uh, here in uh, Denver and some friends. We're going to a party. So that's what we're doing. I hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. I hope you have a lot of fun this week. Happy holidays to everybody. And um, and I will see you again before the end of this month. So thank you very much for coming around and uh, plying me with questions. I hope my answers were useful, informative, educational, and maybe a little entertaining. And uh, like I said, I hope you will support the show and subscribe and uh, share my content around. Thank you very much for coming around, guys. And I'll see you uh, next week. Bye-bye.